This is the 15th in the series of British Society of Haematology podcasts. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we are recording this podcast over Zoom and apologize for any defects of sound quality that might occur. I'm Nilima Parry-Jones, consultant haematologist at Anira and Bevan University Health Board in Wales, where I subspecialize in lymphoma and CLL. I am a member of the UK CLL Forum Executive and co-author of this good practice paper on management of cardiovascular complications of Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors. BTK inhibitors have revolutionized the treatment of CLL, but along with success, as in many things in medicine, there are complications. Cardiovascular adverse events have emerged as an important issue with the use of BTKI. This good practice paper aims to aid clinicians in recognizing, understanding, and appropriately managing cardiovascular complications of BTKI in order to optimize outcomes for patients. The podcast will take the form of a question-answer session between Dr. Renata Valeska, consultant haematologist at University Hospitals Dorset NHS Trust and chair of the UK CLL Forum, and Professor Gregory Lipp, Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine, University of Liverpool and Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital. They will discuss the recognition and management of hypertension, arrhythmias, and issues of anticoagulation. We hope you enjoy listening. Thank you, Neil, for this introduction. Professor Lip, um, obviously we're in the middle of pandemic and um, most of us are doing um, remote clinics and we're trying very hard not to treat patients with chemoimmunotherapy and have been using Brutonterazine kinase inhibitors more frequently in virtual clinics. Many, many times when we saw the patients um, in clinic, um, especially in clinical trials, obviously we were doing blood pressure. And most of the time we were dismissing blood pressure as a white coat syndrome. Um, what is your feeling about marking a raised blood pressure as a white coat syndrome? Thanks very much. And I suppose as a practical perspective, I think BTK inhibitors are increasingly recognized to be associated with cardiovascular um, side effects in a sense. You could say related to, for example, high blood pressure, atrial fibrillation, and sometimes also ventricular arrhythmias. And this is perhaps also um, complicated by the, by the sometimes the age range of the patient population as well, because they may well be in the age range where they are also more uh, prone to getting hypertension, which may be previously undetected. In the era of uh, remote monitoring, uh, I suppose one of the ways to uh, address this, for example, for hypertension management is to encourage our patients to monitor their own blood pressures. And this is from perhaps um, uh, blood pressure machines, which are now actually fairly simple to uh, get uh, from providers either in the high street or from online. And that even in the uh, non, um, in, in, a, in a routine cardiology clinic, I run a hypertension service in my hospital. And uh, yes, I have to do my follow-ups uh, in the middle of the pandemic by uh, virtual clinics. And uh, very often they, I encourage them to keep a blood pressure diary and to, um, when I phone them to give me their blood pressure readings over the course of time. There is reasonable evidence, at least in the uh, non-cardio-oncology 
population, at least the general hypertension population, where home blood pressure readings are actually a good reflection whether or not the patient has white coat hypertension or whether the patient has overt hypertension. And the management or treatment of these patients proactively is actually recommended. So the patients with so-called white coat syndrome, do they have increased cardiovascular problems? Um, well, the evidence, if you look at patients with white coat hypertension, and, and I suppose the indirect measure of whether or not these patients have um, are likely to get complications, you look for evidence of target organ damage. So if you compare um, overt hypertension patients, you compare them against a group of so-called white coat hypertension, and you compare them against normal tensive patients, patients with white coat hypertensions have some evidence of uh, at least intermediate levels of target organ damage. And in the long term, uh, I think it's important that uh, is to keep monitoring these patients because uh, all of us, uh, sadly, as we get older, our blood pressure does rise. And uh, these patients in due course may develop overt hypertension and require treatment. In terms of white coat hypertension, um, I, I stress the point again, regular monitoring, uh, home blood pressure readings, as I mentioned, keeping a blood pressure diary, uh, and um, uh, if necessary, a 24-hour blood pressure monitor, and um, referral to the local hypertension uh, service and or your local friendly neighborhood cardiologists, uh, because I'm pretty sure they'll, they'll be very happy to work together with uh, hematology colleagues, especially if you suspect hypertension developing in a BTK inhibitor treated patient. So if I've got a patient, I'm considering to start abrutinib, and they've got documented hypertension. What, obviously, I, knew, I think from what you just said, um, this is something which I need to carefully assess. So what is the blood pressure would, you would be um, happy with? In general, we should be trying to aim to ensure that the patient has a blood pressure under 140 or 85 as a ballpark figure. Patients with hypertension are not homogenous, and hypertension is not a yes-no diagnosis. And in, in, in a sense, if patients with hypertension have evidence of so-called hypertension target organ damage, and the way we categorize that is the presence of left ventricular hypertrophy on the ECG or an echocardiogram, or, for example, proteinuria, uh, dipstick proteinuria, or overt proteinuria by uh, quantified on a urine collection. Um, and of course, if they've had uh, hypertension-related complications, for example, um, myocardial infarction or stroke or, or, or heart failure, you may be more um, inclined to get the blood pressure nearer 130 or 80. And uh, it's the same also for atrial fibrillation, which we now recognize essentially as another manifestation of hypertension target organ damage. So in general, 140 or 85 is what we should be aiming for. But in presence of associated hypertension target organ damage, my practice is to aim closer to the 130, 80 um, mark. And we also, in the guidance, we uh, mentioned about sort of separated patients younger and older than 80 as well. So we slightly less strict with the reading for patients over, um, over 80. Well, that's the general perception. 
with the evidence from not from the general hypertension population that uh, if you overtreat the uh, very elderly patients age over 80 they start getting a bit more side effects from uh, some of the drugs for example postural hypotension or dizzy spells and that's, that's that sort of thing uh, in terms of the heart cardiovascular outcomes, stroke and uh, amongst others, uh, the, the data in the very elderly are also compelling uh, for treating uh, hypertension to target rather than not. So the, so the comments I mentioned before, generally under 140 or 85, it's uh, probably best practice. And uh, you know, regular liaison with, with patients because we, we have yet to have the perfect drug with zero side effects. And um, if the, particularly in uh, the elderly, postural hypotension and uh, can be a problem with alpha blockers. And uh, another side effect, not commonly um, volunteered, uh, particularly amongst female patients on alpha blockers is incontinence. And it's worth, uh, again, asking about that. So uh, these are, with the elderly, it's just to be a bit more aware, a bit more cautious about associated side effects related to drug therapies. But uh, that, that doesn't change the general principle about aiming to treat blood pressure to target. So if I've got that patient with hypertension and I would like to start them on ibrutinib, so my baseline investigations at absolute minimum would be, as you already mentioned, um, ECG to look for um, hypertrophy and um, echo, and obviously at urine dipstick looking at protein. Um, and, if, uh, and renal yeah. function, use and ease. yes. Yeah, I mean, we would obviously do that on the routine clinic anyway. So what would be your first line of treatment? Because obviously with, we know with abrutinib, there is a huge degree of drug interactions to a bigger and lesser extent. So could you run me through what would be your first line and second line? Uh, absolutely. And uh, if, the re if the renal function is acceptable, um, generally an ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker is a reasonable good choice. The caution is with some calcium channel blockers, for example, where there's interactions due to um, uh, with, with, with uh, drug interactions with uh, BTK inhibitors. And um, for example, verapamil and diltizem in particular, which can... So would that be absolute no? for prescribing calcium channel blocker in abrutinib? I wouldn't put it as an absolute no, but I'd just be a bit more cautious, um, you know, looking for, um, um, for, for uh, the drug interactions uh, with those agents because many patients with hypertension very often will require more than two drugs. On average, about a third of hypertension require two drugs. And you could always say that another third require more than two drugs uh, to achieve target blood pressure. Uh, so it's not absolute, uh, uh, but just to be more aware of potential for drug interactions. Yeah, and, and, and of course they affect CYP453A4 and they may increase abrutinib. I think the quoted number was up to six to nine times. So obviously abrutinib mm -hmm. um, side effects might be increased um, during that time. So Obviously, I'm, I'm a hematologist. Um, as a cardiologist, you know, do, do you expect me to prescribe the um, antihypertensive medication or should I contact GP to do it? How, how shall we sort this one out? 
Well, I, I think um, that, that you should have perhaps a uh, some hypertensive drugs that you are comfortable with initially prescribing, but uh, given the, the need to monitor the patient and looking at the response to blood pressure and uh, mentioned about, we mentioned about side effects and potential drug interactions, it's important either the general practice uh, practitioner to, uh, can also continue with the monitoring or um, if uh, referred to the local cardio-oncology service or the hypertension service locally, just, just to ensure that the patient is responding to treatment and doesn't need additional drugs or a change in therapy. Thank you both. Hopefully we now understand more about the relationship between blood pressure and target organ damage and how to manage hypertension in liaison with the primary care team and the blood pressure clinic. We've learned that elderly patients may require a slightly different approach, in particular recognising the increased rate of postural hypotension, incontinence and other drug-related side effects. Perhaps we should now move on to cover the association between arrhythmias and BTKI. Thank you, Neil. The ibrutinib is obviously brutonterosinic kinase inhibitor, and it's a quite a dirty inhibitor, can affect quite a lot of kinases. So we know that interaction between PI3 kinase, um, calcium handling, and also ibrutinib been shown to, show, to have atrial fibrosis. So it is a bit of a concern, obviously, in CLL patients. So um, if I, so hypothetically, I've got a patient who already has atrial fibrillation, um, and I'm considering starting this patient on ibrutinib. Um, what should I do? Uh, thanks very much, uh, Renata. I think the first, the starting point is in terms of the availability of large prospective randomized trials in this population with atrial fibrillation, uh, um, obviously, non-existent and we have to generalize or extrapolate from some of the information of uh, from general atrial fibrillation populations and I'll start off by um, categorizing the the steps for managing atrial fibrillation which is in fact in any textbook or any uh, guideline and that can be summed up as a b and c so what is a a is a voice stroke uh, and of course these days that's been an anticoagulant either given as a vitamin K antagonist, such as warfarin, with extremely good time and therapeutic range for anticoagulation control. Or these days, increasingly, in the general AF populations, a NOAC, a non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulant, sometimes called a DOAC, a direct oral anticoagulant. I think the latter term is preferred by hematology colleagues. Uh, so that's the A. What's the B? B is better symptom management, because by and large, for patients with atrial fibrillation, we are trying to manage their symptoms. And this brings into the discussion decisions on rate control or rhythm control to try and improve the patient's symptoms and quality of life. So that's the A and the B and the C. The C refers to the fact that patients with atrial fibrillation very commonly have associated cardiovascular risk factors, hypertension, for example, uh, one of the most common, and comorbidities, and that includes things like uh, sleep apnea, excessive alcohol, um, and all those need to be addressed because that lifestyle type management is increasingly important when we counsel or discuss management of the patients with atrial fibrillation. Uh, 
So the A and the B and the C, that is essentially um, the same steps that we would uh, hope that colleagues in general practice would be able to discuss with the patient. Hematology colleagues uh, also, the A and the B and the C, and uh, also cardiology colleagues. And believe me, even within the cardiology department, the interventionists and the electrophysiologists, um, sometimes their uh, they, they, approach uh, uh, they perceive to be different, but in reality, it's as simple as A, B, C. Yeah, and and you very nicely um, edited um, the figure in our um, paper uh, were summarizes. So if you if you're too busy looking at the full guidance about how to manage atrial fibrillation, just look at our figure, which has got very nice flow uh, pathway. So. Um, so if obviously if things are controlled, the patient can continue on ibrutinib. At what point you would, as a cardiologist, you would contact me to say, um, I, I think you need to consider other type of treatments for CLL other than ibrutinib. What would be your trigger point here? In such a situation, we are coming to a difficult patient. And in this uh, scenario, it's important we have a multidisciplinary approach to managing the patient because it's not just the cardiologist decision, it's a, it's a decision in consultation with hematology colleagues and of course uh, where appropriate sometimes even involvement of the patient. But the bottom line still remains that we should uh, make the considerations of stroke prevention, which is avoiding stroke, and then the patient's symptoms of course is paramount to our decisions and uh, and the C is the comorbidities. Now, in this case, of course, uh, if we're trying to make a decision, do we continue or discontinue the BTK inhibitors? Well, we, we have to really consult with uh, colleagues in hemato-oncology. Now, um, the, the, the situations can be, for example, the, the, the association with blood pressure, which is becoming difficult to control, associated heart failure. Uh, and um, we, although we're talking about patient atrial fibrillation, that's the association again with ventricular arrhythmias uh, as well. And if the patient's starting to get symptomatic uh, and potentially life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias, again, that needs a serious discussion again about the best or alternative options for therapy in that difficult to manage patient. Thank you. So let's just um, go back to this hypothetically per perfect patient. So of course, the vast majority of CLL patients will be around about age of 72 or older. And we know that risk of um, atrial fibrillation goes up um, once the patient um, is over 65. So these are obviously at-risk patients. So if, if I'm seeing a patient I'm considering starting on ibrutinib, they don't have a high blood pressure. They appealingly, you know, seemingly, um, they don't have any other cardiac problems. What workup, what cardiology workup should I do before starting this patient on ibrutinib? Well, the, in terms of that patient who has established atrial fibrillation, I think it's important to assess uh, stroke risk as well as the potential for bleeding risk. And stroke risk is assess uh, in terms of clinical risk factors, as, and that's in guidelines as the CHADS-VAS score. The, the acronym is uh, in many of the guidelines since in the last decade. And um, that can also be refined in terms of 
uh, cardiology workup by doing an echocardiogram because the echocardiogram may well pick up asymptomatic left ventricular dysfunction. So that's underlying, um, that's underlying asymptomatic cardiac dysfunction that again contributes to the risk in these in patients with atrial fibrillation. Um, in terms of uh, other factors, it, one really also should look at uh, renal function. That is an important determinant of added risk. It also makes uh, the decision about choice of anticoagulants because um, many cardiologists have perceived the DOAX to be the answer to anticoagulation. And the answer is uh, yes, they are an improvement, but we have to be cautious, uh, for example, in patients with significant renal impairment, because all the DOACs are excreted to, to a degree by the kidneys, some more than others. The greatest renal dependency is with dibigitran, a direct thrombin inhibitor. But even the factor 10 inhibitors have a degree of renal excretion. So part of the workup, clinical risk assessment, laboratory tests, including particularly renal function, uh, an echocardiogram. Um, and if the patient has intermittent atrial fibrillation, uh, this all gets a bit more interesting because uh, if you do a 12-lead ECG, you may well miss the episode of um, atrial fibrillation if it's a paroxysmal episode of atrial fibrillation. You may well do a halter monitor, uh, for example, a 24-hour or a 72-hour halter. And uh, if you're trying to catch the atrial fibrillation, uh, you hope that you're going to get the atrial fibrillation in that time period. But what is increasingly happening is that they have uh, more sophisticated patches and uh, long-term uh, monitoring, for example, for 14 days. But the general principle is with atrial fibrillation is so common and you can go away with the statement that if you look harder, you look longer, and you look with more sophisticated ways, you're more likely to pick up atrial fibrillation. So once you confirm the diagnosis, this is where all your clinical assessment bits also kick in, because if patients have a chance of score two and above, they are really in a category where the benefit of stroke prevention with anticoagulation outweighs uh, the small risk of bleeding with atrial uh, with anticoagulant, uh, starting anticoagulant. Now, with bleeding risks, there are various ways to assess uh, the potential for bleeding uh, in, in a particular patient. And in uh, many guidelines, the HASBLED score, the acronym again is defined in our position document. Why the HASBLED score? It actually is the score that is the most validated bleeding risk assessment score. It has been validated in patients on no anticoagulant. It's been validated in patients on aspirin. It's been validated in patients on warfarin. It's been validated in patients on the DOAX. So you have the whole patient pathway where it's validated. And more importantly, it's also been tested in a prospective randomized trial where appropriate and responsible use of a bleeding risk score like HESBLED to flag up, to identify the modifiable bleeding risk factors so that you can mitigate those. For example, excessive alcohol intake, concomitant use of non-steroidals with an anticoagulant patient. Uh, the, if it's a patient on warfarin, labor INRs. So you identify the modifiable bleeding risk factors and mitigate those. And then secondly, we as clinicians, we 
would like to identify the high bleeding risk patients that we'd like to bring back for early review and follow-up. For example, we want to bring them back for follow-up in four weeks, not four months, not 12 months. We want to bring them back early just to ensure that, uh, that the risk factors are, are well managed. So uh, in, this, in the MAFA trial where this was tested, uh, it was a cluster randomized trial. So the usual care clusters had a, had a major bleeding event rate of one year of about 6%. In the intervention arm using the MAFA intervention based on the Hasblad score, it, the major bleeding rate was about 2%. And in contrast to the misperception that use of uh, bleeding risk scores uh, result in patients not, anti not being anticoagulated. In the usual care arm, there was actually a decline in anticoagulation use, but in the intervention arm with appropriate and responsible use of the Hasblad score, anticoagulation use actually increased uh, at one year. So it's, it's uh, sadly, uh, bleeding risk scores are often misused by the ill-informed and is to, is to really emphasize the point is the appropriate and responsible use of bleeding risk assessments uh, is, is actually to help patient management. And uh, don't forget all bleeding risk scores, uh, sorry, all clinical scores, CHADS, VAS, HESBLED, they all have significant limitations. And I'm the first one to, to, to raise, raise my hand and, and say that. Um, and the applicability again to um, cardio-oncology, uh, it's, there are very limited data, but it's, it's uh, in general uh, that uh, they perform similar. So what's, what would be the main limitation you would, be, would like to warn us about of CHADS and HASBLED score? Well, I think with the um, CHADS-VAS score, that, that simply is a simple way to determine the risk whether the patient is, should be anticoagulated. Now, the, the patient profile of the typical heart-oncology patient in the 70s uh, very likely is going to be with atrial fibrillation presence likely to require anticoagulation. So irrespective of the CHADS-VAS score um, it, and uh, that patient age group um, over 65 with another stroke risk factor very likely should be offered anticoagulation. The HESBLED score is to use it, as I mentioned, to um, identify modifiable bleeding risk factors that should be mitigated and to flag up the high-risk patients for early review and follow-up. So with the HASBLED, obviously CHAT score, we, it's most importantly to assess that um, at least once. HASBLED score, how often would you repeat HASBLED score? Um, well, both scores should be actually assessed at ideally at every patient contact, because uh, one of the things about our patients is this risk doesn't remain static. Uh, risk changes with aging and with incident risk factors. And one of our analyses looking at the dynamic nature of stroke risk as well as bleeding risk, uh, for stroke risk, even patients who were initially at low risk, in other words, CHAS-VAS score zero in males or one in females, uh, about 80% would acquire one on more comorbidities at approximately four to five months after. And the most common of that is hypertension. And in this, in this particular patient setting, uh, where hypertension can be a um, side effects related to BTK inhibitors, that's probably uh, a good reason to keep reassessing for risk at every patient contact. So if I start a patient on ibrutinib, when would you expect 
atrial fibrillation to be a problem and when high blood pressure. So when we should be at uh, mostly alerted about those problems. Well, that's an extremely interesting question where I don't think anybody can give a definitive answer given how heterogeneous patients behave uh, in terms of acquiring new risk factors. But I would certainly uh, use the opportunity at every patient contact. Now, if you have follow-up after initiating therapy, uh, then each time the patient is seen, um, whether it's uh, every every couple of months or whatever, is to reassess again for blood pressure, is to reassess for new onset atrial fibrillation. And, in, and indeed, um, uh, patients actually can be taught how to even feel their pulse. And if it's irregular, then they should certainly seek medical attention. And we are now in the era of uh, smartware, where with, you know, with smart watches and everything else, even the, the smartphones that uh, where you can use the light uh, from the, the, the or rather the uh, camera from the, uh, from the smartphone to actually look for an irregular pulse. All these things, um, you know, there's not a one size fits all how we pick up new onset atrial fibrillation in the patients uh, who are started on uh, therapy. So yeah, I think what you bring brought up is quite something quite important, patient education. And I think obviously with when once we start ibrutinib, the atrial fibrillation can be um, has been reported as early as within days um, to up to three months. So the vast majority of patients will develop a new atrial fibrillation. Um, heart failure can be around about three months and high blood pressure, it's usually quite later. But I think what um, the resonate data from the side effects showed us that that risk never disappeared. I mean, we, we used to know that obviously with ibrutinib, things like diarrhea problems with eyes, they get better with time. That's not exactly true for cardiovascular complications and we should be alerted, especially those patients. Some of those patients can be on ibrutinib um, for quite a long time, especially in a frontline. Um, those patients may, go, may be um, on ibrutinib for a number of years. I would like to ask you a question about paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Is that as dangerous as atrial fibrillation because as you said it's difficult to catch and patients so if somebody is is labeled as paroxysmal atrial fibrillation do i consider them on the same risk level as somebody with atrial fibrillation the short the short answer is yes it's actually in terms of their risk particularly of stroke that is determined by the presence of stroke risk factors by for example in the chats vasco as we already described and why is that important? With paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, only one in 12 episodes are actually symptomatic. So many patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, which we may well pick up incidentally, uh, well, they may well have lots of episodes of atrial fibrillation asymptomatically. And in the presence of multiple stroke risk factors, they would be at risk of stroke. So yes, we would, uh, we would anticoagulate to reduce um, the risk of stroke. And then that's the A. And then actually, when you come to the B, it's uh, again on patient symptoms. So if, as I mentioned, most of AF is actually asymptomatic and the paroxysmal AF patients, if they are largely asymptomatic, then sometimes even rate control with uh, um, uh, option with a beta blocker, which does have a mild 
uh, suppression effect on paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. It's, it's not the best, but still, if the patient's asymptomatic, go with that. And then the C, of course, is make sure again all the blood, the blood pressure is well managed, any, any associated heart failure, uh, and all the other comorbidities need to be proactively managed. And some patients with paroxysmal AF coming to my clinic, they would identify precipitants, spicy food, alcohol, for example, and all these things are worth um, assessing in the part of clinical evaluation. You mentioned about treatment and obviously rate control. So you talked to, so obviously the first line would be beta blockers. Now, digoxin has obviously, um, there is an interaction with ibrutinib and um, I came across that digoxin should be maybe given um, at least six hours apart from ibrutinib to avoid that interaction. What's your thoughts about that? Well, in terms of the many potential drug inter uh, interactions with the BTK inhibitors, um, uh, and many of them, it really, it, it just flags up uh, for caution when used concomitantly. Uh, so absolutely right. Um, the In terms of the interval, um, ultimately with digoxin, it's actually um, becoming a drug for rate control uh, that seems to be um, getting more prominence. Uh, in December last year, we published the RATE AF trial, and this was a comparison of beta blockers and digoxin in elderly patients. And quality of life was no different between the two agents, but side effects was uh, significantly higher in the beta blocker arm. Now, in the B BTK inhibitor patients, um, do bear in mind digoxin, uh, is also influenced by renal function. It is, um, so in a patient with renal impairment, uh, one would start off with quite low doses anyway. And then once you reach the steady state, um, then you know whether, the, whether the timing of a, a BTK inhibitor administration is gonna make a material difference, uh, I suspect it also relates to what the drug levels are in that particular individual patient. But in general, uh, if the patient is uh, tolerant, why not start with a beta blocker first? And beta blockers are good drugs for rate control, and uh, uh, especially the new generation beta blockers, which we recommend in our position document. But there will be some patients where you uh, a beta blocker alone may be insufficient, and you might need to have a little tickle of a beta block of a dig of digoxin, <laughs> uh, you know, just to actually uh, help the the rate control as combination therapy. And would you have a low threshold to, to check digoxin levels in those patients? Um, in terms of uh, whether it's a low threshold or not, I, I think if you're concerned uh, that uh, there may be potential for drug interactions and, change, and, and, and in terms of assessing the drug levels, uh, it is an option. But, uh, and, and uh, especially if the patient is, again, a complicated one with associated renal impairment and things like this. So it's, it's really uh, a situation, again, depending on the patient. I would like to have a chat, pick up um, uh, the anticoagulation and antiplatelet therapy. So obviously we know that ibrutinib um, does also have effect um, on platelets and we've seen um, significant um, bleeding effects. Um, 
it's it's thought to be done thought to affect mainly through von Willebrand factor. Um, you know, obviously, when I'm uh, when I'm dealing with cardiologists, um, the cardiologists love combining um, DOAX with antiplatelets medication and having ibrutinib on top. So you've got three medications, um, which obviously affect bleeding. Um, so, what's your thoughts about? So, we've got a patient with uh, with the uh, with atrial fibrillation who is on DOAC, who is on ibrutinib, and the cardiologist would like to add antiplatelet medicate antiplatelet drug. Um, right. Well, the uh, if I ever come to power, I'm going to try and make sure that patients with uh, atrial fibrillation and stable vascular disease. They do not get such combination therapy with an anticoagulant and an antiplatelet. So uh, I'm still working on that. Not quite, not quite reach uh, power yet. <laughs> but if I do, that's what I'm going to try and ban. Um, there's no evidence that in patients with stable vascular disease, adding an antiplatelet to an anticoagulant improves outcomes. In fact, the contrary happens. Uh, there are significantly more major bleeds and even worse, intracranial bleeds. And when looked at in a prospective randomized trial, uh, even more thromboembolic events with combination therapy. Uh, that's also supported by a meta-analysis and systematic review that we published, where in stable vascular disease, there's really no justification to add antiplatelet to an anticoagulant. The situation is very different if the patient with atrial fibrillation presents with an acute coronary syndrome. And that's, I'm afraid, a whole podcast in itself, because it really is the situation where you're trying to juggle four balls in the air at the same time. Firstly, the patient has atrial fibrillation and vascular disease, so they're high risk, they need an anticoagulant. Secondly, if there's an acute coronary syndrome, they need to we need to prevent the recurrence of cardiac ischemia, and that requires antiplatelet drugs. These days, if such a patient with acute coronary syndrome gets anywhere near an interventional cardiologist, it's a stent. And therefore, to prevent stent thrombosis, we need a antiplatelet as well. And the fourth bony air is this major bleeding risk by the combination of an anticoagulant and an antiplatelet. And you add an anticoagulant uh, to an antiplatelet, you add one antiplatelet, the bleeding risk goes up. You add two antiplatelets, the bleeding risk goes up even more. And there is no antiplatelet in the world, no anticoagulant in the world. You add them in combination, you get less bleeding. It doesn't exist. So it's, it's a complicated scenario. Almost definitely, this is a scenario where cl close liaison between uh, hematology colleagues and, again, the local friendly neighborhood cardiologist is very much required. Thank you. So to sum up, there's a lack of large randomized AF trials specific to the hematology BTKI treated population. So we're extrapolating evidence from the, the general group of patients. We should take an ABC approach, A, avoiding stroke, B, better symptom management, rate and rhythm control, and C, attention to cardiovascular risk factors and comorbidities, such as obstructive sleep apnea or excess alcohol. We've discussed the use of validated risk scores, such as CHAS-VASC and HASBLED, monitoring of renal function, use of 24-hour tape and echocardiography. We've discussed the importance of tailored follow-up according to the patient's risk factors, recognizing that those might change over time. We discussed the importance of a multidisciplinary approach, 
particularly where cases are complex. Shared decision-making is essential, involving the patient where possible. Patients with ventricular arrhythmias form a special high-risk group, but fortunately they are less frequent. Thank you, Neil. So the last thing I would like to discuss with you, Professor Lip, is ventricular arrhythmias and sudden cardiac death. So we obviously we've done this um, good practice paper because in FLARE clinical study, which is upfront a clinical study for uh, untreated CLL patient, there was a signal of sudden deaths and cardiac complications. Um, there was a paper done by French group looking at WHO VGBase database, which is pharmacovigilance um, database, where they reported 303 sudden deaths, which was linked to ibrutinib, which is quite terrifying. And I've got to say, with ventricular arrhythmia, trying to pick up ventricular arrhythmia or pick up patients who are at risk of ventricular arrhythmia, that just, um, it's almost impossible task. How would you approach this? How would you help me? What tips, what, what do I need to look out for and to identify those patients who, who can have ventricular arrhythmias? And certainly there were more, you know, there was other than obviously VG-based WHO database, um, there was blood publication, um, uh, first offer was Lampson um, from Jennifer Brown in 2017, where obviously this is quite a real problem with ibrutinib. Okay, thanks. I think I think you raised again very important points uh, for patient management. Uh, maybe the starting point first is that uh, a common a common query is if an ECG picks up uh, ventricular ectopics, what should we do? And if they're if they're isolated, uh, they are not um, you know prolonged. Uh, they may simply just merit some observation, especially if they've got no symptoms, and especially if the patient has no associated significant underlying comorbidities. Now, yes, the literature is increasingly pointing out the risk of ventricular arrhythmias and sudden death with uh, abrutinib, and there are clinical risk factors associated with an excess of such a risk. Now, that risk of uh, ventricular arrhythmias and sudden death uh, is even in the non-oncology non, non, um, literature because uh, we would expect that risk to be higher, for example, in patients with heart failure and left ventricular dysfunction. We expect that risk to be higher in patients with significant coronary artery disease. And those risk factors uh, also are applicable uh, to the hemato-oncology patients. If they have those clinical risk factors uh, and you start seeing more and more ventricular arrhythmias, I would be particularly concerned. Now, in terms of um, how should these patients be um, managed? Well, as they, well, certainly the patient should be counseled to look out for uh, dizzy, dizzy spells of, you know, falling over or syncope or, and um, if that becomes a problem, then, um, sorry, the, the clinical evaluation of risk factors and echocardiography, all that still applies. Uh, and um, cardiac rhythm monitoring, especially if you pick up ventricular arrhythmias, uh, I think that's 
is almost uh, uh, indication for well, not almost, it's a definite indication for actually liaison with your local electrophysiology colleagues, because such patients may well uh, need a full assessment, whether or not there's other structural heart disease, again, whether there's a long QT syndrome or Brugada, whether there's an inherited cardiomyopathy. Uh, and again, this I would put into the category of a difficult patient where you require a good multidisciplinary approach to optimize the treatment. Yep. And is the other patients who already have got atrial fibrillation more likely to get ventricular arrhythmia? Uh, that's an interesting question. There has been a number of uh, studies how uh, in general pop general population atrial fibrillation patients where there's a, there's a slight excess of uh, sudden death. Now, whether that's confounded by some of the uh, older antiarrhythmic drugs that are used in those patients or not. Um, nonetheless, it's, um, there are also shared common risk factors and notably uh, significant cardiac impairment because that not only contributes to atrial fibrillation, but that contributes to ventricular arrhythmias as well. Uh, I think this is a, this is a group of patients um, who um, definitely need, um, you know, shared decision making and a multidisciplinary approach to management because uh, it's not, it's not, I think, something that um, that uh, individual specialties should struggle on to try and try and manage. And uh, this is where we we do need uh, access to, uh, as mentioned earlier, your local friendly neighborhood cardiologists because I think this is where we uh, need to have input in consultation again with our colleagues in hemato-oncology. So I think obviously in CLL we're quite fortunate because we've got quite a number of different drugs. So I think if we've got somebody who got, has got significant cardiac impairment and significant ischemic um, heart disease, we should really consider other medication other than ibrutinib. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Renata and Greg, for an enlightening and very interesting discussion. We hope you have enjoyed listening to our podcast and have found it interesting and informative. We have discussed the importance of assessing baseline risk factors for cardiovascular disease, importance of vigilance for evolving risk factors, and including the risk of sudden death, which is thankfully rare. We have covered choice of antihypertensive and antiarrhythmic medication and also discussed the risks and benefits of anticoagulation using appropriate validated risk scores. A multidisciplinary approach to patient management is key and in particular liaison between the GP, the haematologist and the cardiovascular specialist is important for the safe management of VTK inhibition in our patients. This podcast is one of a growing number of interesting recordings on the BSH website. We hope that you'll explore others.